Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Season 8 of the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Today we will be examining the list of movies and letting you know where we will be journeying over the next 32 weeks. Then we'll be trying four whiskeys and talking with the founder of Broken Barrel Spirits, Seth Benheim. The Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Brad G. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And Brad, it is time for us to dive into season eight. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus here, but we're back, baby. We're shaking off the rust and we're looking at the next 32 weeks of our lives mapped out in front of us. This podcast has become like almost like a, a yearly marker of sorts, like... <laughs> Anything that you spend 32 weeks doing, that's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to an end and when we start a new season, it it feels like a, a change of the seasons. So for the last two seasons, we've been trying something different. We had been theming our movies around director miniseries. So we were knocking out some unseen films, but also grouping them by director. We watched, you know, four or five movies by Billy Wilder and five more movies by Spielberg. We dove into Charlie Chaplin and Akira Kurosawa. And Brad, I think it was really good for our filmic education. Uh, mm -hmm. You know what it was not good for? Uh, downloads. <laughs> downloads. Downloads and clicks. <laughs> and so we said, let's chase that sweet, sweet paper, baby. Let's sell out, baby. <laughs> But honestly, we did say, OK, let's let's try a little bit of a hard reset here. What could we theme this next season around? That's a little bit more uh, uh, populist, I guess, would be the right word. <laughs> Accessible. And, and what better way to do that than with the almighty dollar, Brad? Our theme for season eight is going to be blockbusters. Money. Money. Oh, <laughs> Greenbacks. <laughs> films films that have the word money in their title. <laughs> films directed by James Cameron. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just all of the money. So, yes, for the next 32 weeks, what we're going to be doing is going year by year for 32 years in a row and looking at some of the highest grossing films of each year. Brad, we initially started with the idea of let's just watch the highest grossing film of each year. And we realized very quickly that A... A lot of them have been done already on this podcast. Movies like Forrest Gump. Uh, Jurassic Park. Jura yeah, obviously Jurassic Park. We hit the mid 90s and it's just like, oh, we've done like four of the top five highest grossing for each year, it mm -hmm. seems like. Yep. So that kind of immediately threw that to the side. But then when you get into like the mid 2000s, this really concerning trend starts where the highest grossing movie every year is just a sequel to something. And and, and it, even when, like, the first one wasn't the highest grossing movie. Right. Yeah, I feel like we get into, like, the mid-2010s and the second Hunger Games movie was the highest grossing film domestically, but the first one wasn't. 
And so we didn't want to get to a point where Brad and I haven't talked about the Hunger Games at all. And we're going to dive into the second one. It just yeah. didn't didn't quite seem right. So we're Catch, going to catching fire, Bob. Yes. I, catching fire. Uh, by the way, have you seen <laughs> the the any of them? First of all. Uh, yeah, actually, I watched the first one when it came out. And then my wife and I went through and watched the three more because they split mm-hmm. the last one like they did. They did. So, so yeah, I have watched all four of them. The new one that's in theaters now, the prequel, uh-huh. very good. Really? I liked it significantly more than I thought I would. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, everybody was pooping all over that movie deservedly as a cash grab. But hey, at the end of the day, it's only a cash grab if you made a bad movie. <laughs> it's at least an excusable cash grab. <laughs> when it's it's good yeah (laughs) all right so yeah like i said we're going to be going year by year and we're starting with the year 1988 now the reason that we're going all the way back into the late 80s is so we can end in the year 2019 this was another thing that brad and i kind of landed on because 2020 is the year that covid hit and movie theaters shut down i honestly couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the highest grossing movie of 2020 was because everything got really wonky. Things that were released. Uh, bad Boys number 17. That's right. Bad Boys for Life, <laughs> which yep. uh, was one of the few movies that braved COVID in theaters. Uh, I don't think it made very much money, but it was the highest grossing film of the year. But it also gives us an opportunity, you know, by the time we get to the last film, uh, 2019's Avengers Endgame, we will be later on in the year 2024. We'll be approaching the five year anniversary of that Avengers film. And I think we've said a few times on the show, Brad, five years is like a really good uh, distance from release for for us to start looking back at a movie. You know, once all the debates have settled and we can start kind of evaluating any sort of cultural impact a movie did or did not have. So I'm I'm really glad we're cutting it off at 2019 and not taking it up to the end of 23 or something like that. Can I can I petition that if we find a year that's just really rough and nothing we want to watch? That we replace it with 2022. <laughs> what, what was 22? Maverick? Top Gun Top Maverick. Gun. Maybe. Well, we've already done Top Gun Maverick with Cruise Probably Volume 1. We should probably do it again. <laughs> <laughs> the revisit. The revisit, baby. So, Brad, how are you feeling about this season overall? I mean, we're, we're getting out of the director mindset. We're getting into the, uh, you know, coke snorting producer, get me a bunch of money mindset. <laughs> Where, where's my podcast coke bob <laughs> subscribe to the patreon at the at the support our coke habit level <laughs> oh man i am really excited for this year i think that the director miniseries were a blast i felt like the first season of it was a little more fun than the second season mm-hmm. and i like Almost solely because there were directors like Edgar Wright in there that just direct really fun, bombastic movies. And the second season, I think, was probably better film on average. But I'm excited to get it in some blockbusters, Bob. Me too, man. And we're going to go ahead and dive into the list here. The fun thing about this is that Brad has not seen the list of what we're going to be watching this year. So these are all in the dark, all getting revealed to him for the first time. Now, like I said, Brad, I think that our operative assumption should be if we have not seen the highest grossing film of the year, that's kind of automatically the choice. You know, if we haven't reviewed it on the podcast, unless it is a sequel 
where we have not done the first one. Like, is that fair? Sure. And in that case, we just kind of go down to whatever the the first non-sequel is. Or we just pick the movies that we want because it's our podcast. <laughs> well, this movie was only the 76th highest grossing of the year, but <laughs> but, but damn it, wasn't it a block, but like it was a box office success. <laughs> Brad, Brad, we already reviewed Secondhand Lions. Why are you trying to make us watch it again? <laughs> because it was a blockbuster. <laughs> now I'm curious uh, what number. It was in, in 2001. <laughs> it couldn't have been very high, man. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that. All right. So let's go ahead and reveal this list, starting with 1988's Rain Man. Rain Man, a domestic yeah, kind of road trippy drama starring Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman, was, in fact, the highest grossing movie in the United States in 1988. Yeah, this is a stellar film, and I am so glad that it is on the list for this year, Bob. I have seen probably this whole movie in bits and pieces on cable television over the years, Brad. I don't think I've ever sat down and watched Rain Man front to back. No. I don't think I have. No. Robert. The best picture winner of the year, the highest grossing film of the year. I don't think I've ever seen it in one sitting. Oh, my gosh, dude. The uh, the chemistry between my boy Tommy Cruz and Dustin Hoffman is impeccable in this film. Mm. Well, I'm very excited, man. I just can't believe like how far we've come as a society, like in the wrong way. When that when you look back on this, you're like, this is the kind of movie that would be released straight to Netflix nowadays. Mm-hmm. Like this probably wouldn't even get it would be like, you know, Adam Driver and Jake Gyllenhaal in a movie together and it would be like a Hulu exclusive bro that movie would slap that a a rain a rain man remake with Gyllenhaal and driver would be let's freaking go all right Brad why don't you take us into 1989 this one should not be a surprise to anybody because it was one of the highest grossing films ever for a long time Bob we're talking the caped crusader Mm. We're talking about the superhero who has no superpowers. We're talking Batman. Tim Burton's Batman. <laughs> Very specifically, Tim Burton's yeah, let's, Batman. Let's slap that on there. We're not talking about anyone else's Batman here. I have very oh, strong thoughts on this movie. I can't wait to dive into Batman. Have you seen this version before? I have a very distinct memory of my living room being torn asunder as my wife and I were painting. And like we had our couch in the middle of the room and our television in the middle of the room and we were really tired and we ordered, I think, Chinese food. And I was like, babe, we should watch Batman. It's been on my list for a long time. And it was the perfect like way to just laugh ourselves silly at the end of the night. Yep. That is a great way to describe that movie. A film that is near and dear to the hearts of many, you know, elder millennials and younger Gen Xers. Mm-hmm. And that latter generations just poo-poo, including Very, myself. I was going to say, <laughs> I'm right there with them. <laughs> All right. 1990, uh, by far the highest grossing movie of that year, was Chris Columbus's Home Alone. Brad, as I put this list together, I'm really shocked at how many Christmas movies show up on here. Like, <laughs> way more Christmas movies than I anticipated. And of course, we're not starting this season until January. So we are... As far away from Christmas as we can possibly get. Yep. You know, so we'll be watching Home Alone, not for Christmas, but for like, you know, January 20th or something. Sure. 
I, I will say, Bob, I just I've always had this like false memory in my brain of us already recording an episode on Home Alone. And so I'm like curious to see how this goes, because in my brain, I already have a whole story concocted of like what we already said about this movie. I don't think we have. If we if we did, I forgot about it. Oh, OK, <laughs> <laughs> I trust you. But for some reason, I feel like we've reviewed it. I'm sure that we haven't. Uh, but I dude, John Williams, like one of the greatest, absolute best themes of all time. Mm. I'm, I'm so excited for Home Alone. 1991 is where we hit our first uh, snag because we've already done the highest grossing film of the year, which was Terminator 2 Judgment Day. A, bum, 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 bum. a film that freaking slaps. Dude, what a movie. So what a movie. And shockingly, the second highest grossing film of the year is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner and Morgan Freeman, a movie that a lot of people who grew up at this time remember seeing. I literally just saw someone posting about this on Twitter yesterday, but I feel like it has not really stuck around in the cultural memory. Like, if you weren't watching it in 1991, I've never seen this movie. Brad, have you? I have seen bits and pieces of it. I don't know if I've ever sat down and watched it all the way through, mm. which is understandable for a movie like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Not quite as much so for Rain Man, but I'm just putting that out there. The top six movies of 1991, Terminator 2, Robin Hood, Beauty and the Beast, The Silence of the Lambs, City Slickers and Hook. And I feel like all five other movies have so much more cultural cachet today than Robin Hood does. Like, I was just really surprised to see how highly, like how high grossing this movie was. Yeah, a absolutely. There, there was a power that Mel Brooks had over the domestic box no, that no, no, like, this is not this is not men in tights. This is this is Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, a dramatic. This is a real Robin Hood movie. Wait, what? Yes. I thought I thought this was men in tights. No, this is this, uh, <laughs> this has Kevin Costner <laughs> in a very serious role. As Robin Hood. Oh, man, I, I that threw me for a loop, man. I legitimately thought we were talking. No, <laughs> we were talking. Mel Brooks. That's why I was shocked. I was like, you've seen it. I was like, really? I was like, yeah, sure. Mel Brooks, like, you know, it's a comedy. It makes sense that people liked it. Uh, I am vastly excited. Now that I realize what it is, I have seen, like, clips of this film, but I've never actually watched any of it. Yeah, uh, me, me neither. Yeah, dude, this is going to be incredible. All right, Brad. Uh, 1992 is another interesting one because we've seen a bunch of movies that were already in the top five here, which means the first one on the list that we're going to get to is what? Well, it seems like our choices are Home Alone 2 or Sister Act. Mm. Now, Bob, I have seen and absolutely love Home Alone 2. I think it's one of the best sequels of all time, if only for the fact that the quality maintained extraordinarily high. Mm. I have never seen Sister Act. Yeah, so this is an interesting one because Home Alone 2 is the second highest grossing movie of the year. And we will be doing Home Alone 1 just a couple weeks prior, right? It's just a question of, like, do we need to hang out in the Home Alone universe for that much time? Like, will our <laughs> thoughts on Home Alone 1 pretty much apply to Home Alone 2? Sister Act is only the sixth highest grossing movie of its year. But that's because the third, like, number three is Batman Returns, so that it still has the sequel problem. 
Number four is Lethal Weapon 3, so even more. It has the sequel problem. And then number five is A Few Good Men, which we've already done on the show. So it's like, where where do you want to go here, man? Honestly, Bob, I, I think that Home Alone 2 is probably the better movie to review, especially if we're chasing the almighty dollar. Mm. I just kind of want to see Sister Act. That's like, I've I've never seen it. I literally know almost nothing about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm kind of curious. Let's go Sister Act, because if people are like really huge Home Alone stands, they'll tune in for the first one. Like, I don't think anyone's sure. like, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to hold out for Home Alone 2. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. All right, cool. So we're going to we're going to watch the sixth highest grossing movie of 1992, Sister <laughs> we're Act. We're doing great. <laughs> which leads us to 1993, where, as we've said, we've already done Jurassic Park. What and, a year. And man, oh man, Brad, the first movie that is eligible on this list is a movie that I have been hoping to slot in for a long time. A truly Bro. perfect action film. Bro. <laughs> Harrison Ford I, in The Fugitive. I can't wait to watch this. You haven't seen it, have you? I have seen it. Oh, gosh. Okay. I thought it yeah. was going to be a first time watch for you. No, The Fugitive is an incredible movie. I have not seen it since I was a teenager. So it has been a hot minute, but this is going to be an incredible one, Bob. And as we run away from The Fugitive into 1994, 94 is crazy, Bob. You got Lion King and Forrest Gump sitting at the top. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Santa Claus sitting at number four, Mm -hmm. which is one of my wife's absolute like all-time favorite movies. But number three is a movie that I know little to nothing about. Mm. A film called True Lies. Directed by James Cameron. Ah, this is, is this first movie that he makes there after T2, and it sits squarely between T2 and Titanic. And by comparison, it seems kind of slight. Like, it's a it's an action thriller. It's done in the James Cameron style, so there's, like, gigantic explosions and incredibly well-choreographed action sequences. But it's, like... Morph- morphing robots. But, it's you know, it's about <laughs> real people in the real world. And it's not set on a sinking boat or, you know, no one's fighting robots. So it just seems like in retrospect, this is like one of the smaller James Cameron films. But I watched it for the first time about a year ago because, I, you know, we were doing our James Cameron thing for the podcast. And it was one of my big blind spots. What a fun movie. Just is it's the, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's Jamie Lee Curtis. Say, it's so good. Is this dude. the one? Is this the one where Arnold is in like a nice crisp white shirt with a giant silver gun on the cover? That's the one, man. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've definitely seen that cover before. Oh, it's such a good movie. <laughs> it really, just really in fun. Your brain. It's like one of those <laughs> movies that I don't want to say you turn your brain off, but like it has the setup of like a classic 1930s screwball comedy. Like mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a CIA agent, I think, and has been able to keep it a secret from his family for like years and years. And then his family gets embroiled in this whole CIA thing with him. And Jamie Lee Curtis, his wife kind of gets brought in by the CIA to also be an agent with him. And like, it's just fun. It's a fun movie. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be a blast, man. I'm excited for that. All right. Let's keep going, man. 1995, Brad, take us to it. Yeah. So 95 is an interesting year. Uh, one of the greatest animated films of all time takes the top spot here with Toy Story. Right behind that, you have Apollo 13, and then we have just an epic battle of mediocrity Mm. with Batman Forever, Pocahontas, 
Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, and Goldeneye. Mm-hmm. And I, that's an interesting foursome to choose from. I'll be honest with you. I watched Pocahontas like a year or two ago. Did not like it. Mm-mm. Did not enjoy it at all. Yeah, this is an interesting conundrum because like Batman Forever is the third of the Batman movies like pre-Nolan. You know, it's like Batman, Batman Returns. They take a couple years off and then they bring in completely new people to direct. Like Joel Schumacher directs this. Val Kilmer is Batman in this movie. This is the one with the Riddler and Two-Face. So it doesn't really seem like a direct sequel. It's just like a new Batman movie. You know, similar to Goldeneye, which is the first Pierce Brosnan Bond movie. It doesn't really have the sequel problem because James Bond is just a character that gets replaced by new actors every now and then. Yeah. Well, and at this point, they've already set the precedent multiple times over that the Bondiverse can be restarted. Yes. So, like, I wouldn't have a problem watching either of those two movies from the sequel perspective. Pocahontas is the closest to Toy Story, which is actually, like, the number one movie of the year. So if we wanted to, like, embrace the spirit of that, I guess we would watch Pocahontas. But to your point, Pocahontas, a truly mediocre film. Yeah. Like, I just really don't care to watch Pocahontas. Yeah, and I just don't want to, like, poop over it for 45 minutes and then have, like, Disney stands angry with me. Now, Batman Forever is a truly terrible movie, like just (laughs) god awful. I think we could have fun crapping on that movie. So it's really for me, this comes down to either Batman Forever or Goldeneye. So I'm going to let you uh, take your pick here, man. You know, I think we need to do a pre-Daniel Craig James Bond movie, Mm -hmm. if only so that we can appreciate Daniel Craig for, for who he was in the Bond universe. Now, Brad, were you a uh, an N64 player? Did you play the GoldenEye game back in the oh, day? Dude, yes. I played the heck out of some GoldenEye. That's what, what we need. An, to, we need what to an just, incredible game. We need to just implement a segment this season of like, how good would the video game be? So that we can actually <laughs> talk about GoldenEye. But then we can also talk about the potential Sister Act video game. That would be a heck of a video game, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing nothing about the movie, other than the fact that Whoopi Goldberg as a voice actor would be incredible for a video game. All right, I'm going to try to get us through these next few rather quickly here, Brad. 1996 and 1997, we are watching back-to-back Will Smith alien invasion movies with Independence Day. One of my all-time favorite films, if I'm being honest with you, Brad. Just just a preposterous movie that I love so much. Yeah. Yeah. And then one of the most underrated films of the 90s, Men in Black. Bob, I have not seen either of those movies, and they have both been on my list for an incredibly long amount of time. Like you've never seen them ever? Ever. Oh, my gosh. Ever. Never, ever. I thought that it was like a requirement of being born in the 90s that like before you turn 18, you have to have seen Independence Day and Men in Black. Yeah, no, I, I've never seen them. I know that Will Smith is the star, and I do not know much else about those movies. Mm. It's actually, now that I look at these these movies, we're doing like back-to-back-to-back-to-back space and alien stuff. <laughs> we, it's a little mini-series. Because <laughs> 1998, another true banger and classic of the Michael Bay genre, Armageddon, which was by far the highest-grossing movie of 1998. Uh, yeah. Saving Private Ryan actually maybe Saving Private Ryan was number one and then it was Armageddon but there was a huge gap after that that's what I remember yeah another film 
I have never seen and has been on my list for a long, oh, long time. Man. Armageddon. Bruce Willis drilling a hole into an asteroid. Like what? Mm. Pure what cinema. What could you ask for? Pure cinema. <laughs> Does it end with a baby suspended in space? <laughs> it should. Because I, I, th I think that's pure cinema. It Bob. absolutely should end that way. <laughs> All right, and then Bob, 1999, Brad. Yeah, I'll let you take this because I, I just, uh, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that you didn't put any other movies on the docket because you knew that I wouldn't let you get away with it. We are going to be watching Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, a movie that I am truly, truly elated to bring onto the podcast. If only for the fact that I am a pretty, pretty devout prequel defender yes. nowadays. I think that the prequels are great movies. I do not think that they're as good as the originals. I think that they are a million times better than the Disney films. I hate this so. movie, Brad. I hate it. I hate it. So <laughs> it, it is awful. And I hear people Bob. talk about episode two and I'm like, episode two, just from a narrative scripting standpoint, is like Citizen Kane compared to episode one sucks dude it's so no. bad episode one is not that bad i think that episode one and two are kind of on par for me Ugh. and then uh, we've already talked about episode three but like the first like half to 60 percent of episode three is probably the worst part of the prequel trilogies but then the last like 45 minutes is is like absolutely dead on perfect so i, I can't fault it for anything Part of the reason I'm glad we didn't do Batman Forever back in 95 is that I have to do awful movies for a few weeks in a row here in the early 2000s because <laughs> we're doing Phantom Menace and then 2000. This is not even like the third highest grossing. The highest grossing film domestically in the year 2000 is Ron Howard's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, a film that I am. I don't know if you've seen this movie recently, Brad. It is a movie where every angle is a Dutch angle, and it looks as if they smeared Vaseline on the lens to film this whole this whole movie. And it feels like what I imagine a horrible, horrible trip on some sort of hard drug feels like it is a truly bad movie. Bob, I want you to know that there are tons of people who still really love this movie dude it's have you seen it lately like, no i've watched it maybe once in my life and did not like it but i i just want you to know you are going to get pushback on this i like it feels like a movie i still hear about every single year around christmas time well, you need to hang out with new people because that movie sucks. <laughs> I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying people love this movie, man. All right. We get into the early 2000s and it seems like we have, as a nation, fully embraced uh, just watching bad stuff and watching it a lot. Because like 1988, we're watching the best picture winner, Rain Man. Uh, 2001, we're like, you know, what we should give our money to. We should go see Shrek a whole bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yep. I am fully prepared for this one, Brad. I know that the internet is going to come at us for this. Mm -hmm. Shrek is one of those movies that I don't think people realize how it got to the point where it was considered a classic now, because about, I'd say about 10 years ago, Shrek memes started popping up on the internet mm -hmm. and they started popping up as a way of making fun of the movie Shrek and its ridiculous character design. 
And people embraced it so much that it then turned the perception of the movie around to like, actually, Shrek is a banger. Actually, Shrek is a well-made film. Actually, Shrek is an animated classic. And I've never seen anything take the trajectory from like, we're going to pillory this movie to no, we've made fun of it so much that now it's come out the other side as like a bulletproof classic. <laughs> but I'm here to tell I, you, Bob, man, uh, aggressively mediocre film. Bob, here's the thing. I don't remember it quite like that. I Like maybe this is just my personal, you know, watching this as like a 12 year old. But I I remember Shrek watching it as a kid, really enjoying it. And I feel like every single person I ever talked to has loved Shrek Hmm. from the time it came out till, you know, today in 2024. Like, this is a movie that has been universally beloved from the start. Uh, I don't think it had the the low dark periods that you're describing. Well, okay, I think you're I think you're right in that it was always like well regarded among people who grew up watching it. But it's kind of the same thing of like, do you remember a couple years ago they came out with like the fifth or sixth Despicable Me movie and Mm -hmm. like all the young kids were dressing up in like suits to go see it? Sure. What was it? What did they call themselves? It was like minions. Yeah, but they were like, I can't remember what they called themselves. There was like a word for it. Banana turds. (laughs) Like young kids (laughs) dressed up in full tuxedos to go see that movie. And it was like an internet thing. I I did not see. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Um, Uh, So it's like Despicable Me was a well-liked movie, but there's also this weird internet subculture that started with making fun of minions and making fun of Despicable Me. And it has since come back around to like, we've made fun of it so much that it's kind of endearing now. And so like Despicable Me is put on this weird pedestal of movies that aren't that good that we now consider like (laughs) classics of the genre. I feel like Shrek was the first one that took that. Like, because Shrek had kind of fallen out of fashion a little bit. And then all of a sudden it was like, guess what? Shrek's back with a vengeance, baby. (laughs) I will leave this into your expert hands, Bob. I spend way too little time on the Internet to to know about any of these trends. That's a really nice way of you saying I am way too chronically online. (laughs) Hey, I didn't say it, man. (laughs) Okay, let's breeze through this. 2002 is an interesting one. I'm going to leave this up to you. I already know where you're going to go, but hear me out. The third highest grossing movie of the year, which is the first one that's eligible for our list, is Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Mm. Now, it makes a lot of sense to watch it because we will be watching Episode 1. and We've already done Episode 3 back in that season where we just picked random stuff. Right. Attack of the Clones, kind of universally considered maybe the worst of, uh, like, definitely the worst of the prequels, maybe the worst Star Wars movie. And, like... There's just a part of me that's like, we're already doing another like three or four Star Wars movies farther on down the list. Like, do we want this season Ugh. to really have like six Star Wars movies in it? And and as a guy who hates Star Wars, like, I, I don't want that. Um, I do think. You, do you actively hate the Star Wars universe? I just. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I, I like I and I think that it was ambivalence for a long time. And then it was like, I feel like this is overhyped. And then it was like. This this fan base is so toxic that I just don't I don't want to spend any time talking about these movies ever. Hmm. You know what I mean? The Ohio State fan. That's true. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, I think that my counter programming would be the fifth highest grossing movie of this year, which is my big fat Greek wedding. 
which is not a movie that is like, you know, I don't see the youths clamoring for this movie now. <laughs> really? However, I don't know if you remember like what this movie was like when it came out, Brad. It, oh, it, it was a sensation. It was man. an absolute phenomenon because it cost like two million dollars to make. And then it made two hundred million dollars. It was at yeah. like at the time it was like this and the Blair Witch Project, I think, were like dollar dollar per dollar the most successful films ever made in terms of like the return on investment. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's mom <laughs> wanted to see this movie. Like it was just <laughs> an absolute phenomenon. And I think it'd be kind of interesting like to go back and talk about like why this movie in 2002, I don't think it would get the downloads that attack of the clones would, but I think it's an interesting, all right, Hey, if we don't want to go full star Wars, this is another option. Yeah, I mean, I, there's part of me that wants to choose Attack of the Clones just so that we can close out the series mm -hmm. on, you know, close the book on all of the good Star Wars movies. <laughs> I really also want to watch my Big Fat Greek Wedding because <laughs> that's just a really fun movie. For some reason, I, I've never seen this other film, but for some reason, I paired this movie with Mamma Mia in my head. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I feel like they're they have to be in the same universe. They're they're definitely I, chasing the same demographic. I can tell you that much. Yeah, uh, exactly, man. So, I don't know, Bob. I, you know what I think? Mm. I think the Coin of Destiny should decide here. All right, listen. Here's my here's my counter pitch. Before we bring the Coin of Destiny in, what if we do this? What if we do my big fat Greek wedding here? But we also watch and review Attack of the Clones, and we make it a Patreon-exclusive bonus episode. Ooh, yeah, that's a great idea. So if you want to hear us say, finish out the Star Wars, you know... Saga. Yes. Yeah. Subscribe to the Patreon. We will we will do a full episode on Attack of the Clones, but for the public, we'll do my Big Fat Greek Wedding. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's like a huge trade-off for most people, Bob. <laughs> That's that's like us being like, yeah, Star Wars Episode Five behind a paywall. Well, I was gonna say, <laughs> would you rather put my Big Fat Greek Wedding behind the paywall? Like, who's signing up for the Patreon to pay money to listen to my Big Fat Greek Wedding? Uh, that's true. Yeah, Attack of the Clones paywall, the Almighty you Dollar. Pay. That's right. <laughs> you got to pay to hear us talk. Attack. Two thousand three. We're watching Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. Yeah, it's freaking are. good. I can't wait to revisit it. It's like twenty Banger. years old this year. Yeah. Banger. Moving on. All right. 2004. The number one highest grossing movie domestically was Shrek 2. Counter programming the number three highest grossing movie, The Passion of the Christ, a movie that Ooh. like I am not excited to watch if we want to watch that movie. But uh, perhaps no two podcast hosts on Earth are more qualified to talk about that movie now than we are. Yeah, that is very true. I, it was a phenomenon, Brad. Yeah, I was going to say that movie was A, a phenomenon, and B, I'm really interested to return to it and watch it just on a just on its own merits. Mm -hmm. Like, like I, I watched it. Yeah, I watched it when it came out. I wept my brains out because I was in middle school and I'm going to watch it now as an adult and probably cry even harder. But also, I'm just curious to watch it again. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's been 20 years since I watched it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we should do Passion. Lots of fun. We're not going to do uh, Shrek 2, and instead we're, we're doing... Our, our little Christian, Christian sub-movie uh, uh, plot here, because 
Because following 2004's Passion of the Christ, we have 2005's C.S. Lewis-inspired Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A film that I am shocked is the second highest grossing film domestically of 2005. What was the first? I think it was episode three. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a movie that I remember going to see like the week it came out. I went with my sisters and like it was fine. It was a fine movie. I remember thinking even at the time like, oh, Disney wants to do Lord of the Rings and they're like not leaning into it hard enough. It's like, mm -hmm. how do we do PG Lord of the Rings? Um, And then I remember like. Not many people that I knew saw this movie. No one really loved it. And yet here we are, second highest grossing film of the year. So where are all of the Narnia people? Because I don't <laughs> remember meeting you back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a... Honestly, this was a perfect pitch to capture the Christian demographic and capture the fantasy demographic mm -hmm. in a time when the fantasy demographic still didn't have a lot of media catered to it. Mm -hmm. Like this is pre game of Thrones. It's, it's way before it became super popular to go back and, you know, read things like wheel of time. And now there's a television show for it. Like this was still a time when you couldn't get content like that. Mm -hmm. And so I think Narnia hit checked a lot of those boxes and it makes sense to me, Bob, can I go back and comment on 2003 for one second? Sure. So fast. <laughs> yeah. We're two years past it. Go for it. We could watch Pirates of the Caribbean, or we could go back and watch the number 71 highest grossing film of 2003, <laughs> Secondhand Lions. It's so funny because I said, what, 76? What, and you I did. was just joking. Just barely off. <laughs> it, it was uh, right next to the Lizzie McGuire movie. Mm. Was it behind the Lizzie McGuire movie? Or <laughs> Yeah. Okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a bad beat if you're Robert Duvall. Oh, man. Yeah, All right, 2006. We can either watch the number one highest grossing film, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, or the number two highest grossing film, Night at the Museum. I feel like this is just a lose-lose situation. I don't want to watch either of these movies. This sounds horrible. We could just rewatch Children of Men. Oh, that's... Call that a that's... day. Yeah, the Departed. That, that's actually... <laughs> that's actually a little bit attractive to me. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to remember. I see. I will say I remember enjoying Dead Man's Chest when it came out and being confused by Dead Man's Chest when it came out. Mm -hmm. I think that Night of the Museum is the fun, easy watch here. All right. I like it. Yeah. You know what? Maybe we'll, maybe I'll do something. Because my, my son will be turning seven years old before then. Maybe I'll do some sort of like watch along with him on that yeah. movie and, and write down That's his notes idea. and bring the, bring uh, my kids notes into that that review as well. I think you should just bring your kid into the review. <laughs> I don't think my wife <laughs> is ready for me to put my I, child on a whiskey related podcast. I think that I am totally ready for this. <laughs> he easily will have a better take than you on that movie. That's true. <laughs> uh, it looks like I, I mislabeled 2007 because I have either Transformers or Transformers as our two Bob, options here. Bob, our resident Transformers <laughs> Michael Bay stand. I really want to watch Transformers, man. <laughs> uh, I have not seen any of the Transformers movies. Oh, really? You didn't You didn't see the first one when it came I, out? Absolutely not. I could not be bothered. Uh, it looked awful. <laughs> and uh, from what I hear, it was awful. So... Um, I, I remember enjoying it 
when I watched it uh, in 2006 how, or 2007. However, I do remember thinking like, oh, that was kind of a dumb, fun movie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take that as you will. The number one highest grossing movie of this year is Spider-Man 3. But I'm going to rule that ineligible because we didn't do Spider-Man 2, which if there's uh, any Spider-Man movie to talk about, it would have been 2004's w- Spider-Man 2. Yeah, it really would have. Bob, can we watch Spider-Man 3? Because I've not seen it and I, I want to watch it. Yeah, but what are we going to do about Spider-Man 2? We'll watch it someday because it's an incredible movie. So we're going to have a review live for Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 3. Yes. And no review for Spider-Man 2. Yes. And that is still preferable to you to Transformers. Yes. Transformers is a bad movie, Bob. It's fun, but it's not good. And I know Spider-Man 3 is bad, but I just want to watch it. Well, we're like 20 <laughs> weeks into the season here. What if we make this a listener pick? Ooh, should we watch Spider-Man idea. 3 or should we watch Transformers? Because I feel like they both have fan bases. Yeah. And it's just a question of like which one is the more vocal. Yeah. We'll we'll throw a poll up on Instagram and get your guys' vote because that that's a great idea, Bob. Okay. Which takes us to 2008. Uh, the, the top two grossing movies are ineligible. Number three is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a movie <laughs> that not people watching truly that movie hate. Again, <laughs> you can't make me. I had never seen this movie until about three months ago, Brad. I watched it before they released the new Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. Not that bad. Not nearly as bad as everyone. Like, it's it's preposterous. <laughs> but it's, like, well made. And I think that's the thing yeah. is, like, I've seen enough truly bad superhero movies in the interim. That I'm yeah. like, Steven Spielberg making a movie with a wacky premise is still a million times better than like a so-so MCU movie. Sure. Do, so do you just want to take this as an opportunity to poop on the MCU? Kind of. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull it is. It is a sequel and we haven't done the second or third movie. But I kind of feel like Indiana Jones falls into that bond range where like. Yeah. The stories are not really related to each other. Like, you don't need to see any of them to jump in and understand what this character does. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the third one is the only one that gives you, like, some backstory on Indy. So, yeah, I, I think that's totally fine, Bob. All right. Crystal Skull it is. And that takes us to 2009, where we either watch Transformers 2 or Pixar's Up. Up there's is only yeah. There's only one choice here, Bob. I mean, Up is the only the fifth highest grossing film of that year, but given the uh, listener choice that we just implemented, we we would end up watching Transformers two maybe without watching Transformers one, mm-hmm. and I really don't want to do that. So let's just go with Up here. Yeah, I think that's a uh, obviously a great choice. And hey, we get to 2010, and we actually get to watch the highest grossing movie of the year. Imagine that, Brad. Wow. Yeah, this is a, a great premise for the year, Bob. <laughs> We're watching Toy Story 3, which is, man, I always thought that it was my least favorite of the three, even though it had like the most thematically going on. Mm-hmm. And then I watched all three of the Toy Stories in like a two week span a couple years ago. And I was like, oh, my gosh, Toy Story 3 is a masterpiece. Yeah, it is so yeah, good, dude. It's incredible. I, I watched it at a drive in when it came out. I love that movie, and I'm really excited to watch it. Now, we're going to implement a second listener pick for 2011, because 2011 
is a truly awful year for film. The top nine movies at the domestic box office were sequels. And the 10th movie is Thor. So it's also IP. In fact, you have to get all the way down to number 14 to find an original movie, which would be Bridesmaids. Yeah. 13 is The Help, which is based on a novel. Like everything is IP this year. It really sucks. I have no idea what to pick here, Brad. Yeah, Bob, and I, I don't think we should have to pick. Mm-mm. I think this is the year that the listeners get to decide. So, the, Bob, are we just going to make this this week, this uh, year, a, a listener pick? I think it has to be with like 14 options because I don't, I don't yeah. really know what else to do here. <laughs> I would say The Help was a pretty solid movie. I, I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And we've already done the number one movie of the year, which is Deathly Hallows Part 2. Yeah, so maybe we will pick out four movies from the top 15 for you guys to vote on, and we'll just, we'll see what happens. Let you guys decide. All right, 2012, it's The Avengers. This was an easy one. Uh, Still one of my favorite MCU movies. I love the first Avengers, Brad. Yeah, great, great movie, great character development, good, pretty solid action scenes. I think this was MCU at its peak. All right. Uh, 2013, a movie that I hoped we'd never would talk about on this podcast, but it's, it's, you just gotta, you know, you just gotta let that go. Bob. I gotta let it go, Brad. We're let watching Frozen and then we're diving into 2014, which is a very different film from Frozen. It's called American Sniper. Yeah. This was a phenomenon. Yeah. It, it took over the country and people were obsessed with it. Mm. I have still not seen it, Bob, and I am very interested in this film. Yeah, Brad, I'm really excited to watch American Sniper. It's an interesting movie, to say the least, to think that. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, anytime we talk about Clint, there's uh, there's the questions of like, is he condoning the violence? Is he, you know, um, judging, punishing the violence? And then in the context of this movie, it's like you get into some really thorny stuff just because of like where it's happening and who's doing it and. Yeah, it's a good movie, and it's maybe Bradley <laughs> Cooper's best performance. Really good stuff. That That's interesting to hear. I, I'm More than anything, I think I'm interested to see Cooper in that. So mm-hmm. it'll, it'll be a fun week. Well, and then we are finishing out the season with five films that I think will probably drive the most downloads and, and also do the most damage to my soul. Because like, I just truly could not care less about talking about most of these movies. <laughs> if I'm being frank with you. Bob, you're you're like really building up. Remember that this season was your idea. This it wasn't was. me. I didn't push this on you. I liked the idea of like the whole meta narrative of the decline of cinema. Like uh, from yeah. 1988 to now. Like look now, what we now have you become. Have to, now you have to actually like participate in the decline. I know. Look what I have wrought upon myself. Yeah. We're starting with 2015's J.J. Abrams uh, offering, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, a movie that, Brad, let's be honest here, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good movie. Uh, And I don't think that there's anything more to say, at least at this point, about it. It's just funny, like, as the sequels went on and people liked them less and less, I think this one gets propped up more than it probably should. It was like a pretty good movie that in comparison to at least one of the other sequels looks like a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, Almost any film looks like a masterpiece compared to episode nine. Mm. So bad. (laughs) Oh, so bad, bad, dude. See, 
here's the thing. I walked out of The Force Awakens and I basically said, this movie could be great if the next two are incredible. Mm -hmm. But as it stood, it felt like a remake of A New Hope with slightly new characters. Mm -hmm. And if you just take it on those merits... I'd imagine I'll come out in the same place, but who knows, man? That's that's the whole point of revisiting movies. The year after that, we got one of my favorite Star Wars movies. I, I mean, I think it's it's pretty obvious, Brad, to you, a Star Wars fan, that like my opinion on Star Wars it just doesn't matter to you because like I like the least Star Warsy Star Wars movies, and my two favorite Star Wars movies. I think Empire is probably still the best made of all of them, but my two favorite ones are Rogue One and Last Jedi. And Rogue One, I saw that in the theater, and I walked out of that movie feeling like that's a Star Wars movie. Like, whatever J.J. did, well, he played it safe, and I understand why he did that. Rogue One, like, did it for me. Yeah, I mean, the the second half of Rogue One felt the most like a classic 1970s and 80s Star Wars movie than anything that anyone has ever put out. It was just the, so nice to see, like, well-directed action again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%, man. The The final battle, which, you know, a, as any good Star Wars movie, takes up about 30 to 40 minutes of the film, mm-hmm. is really incredibly well done. The stakes are established. You know the geography of the fight. It, it's really well made. I think that the first, I don't know, hour and 20 minutes of the movie are like hot garbage. Mm. But I, that's how I feel about Return of the Jedi and Revenge of the Sith. So maybe this is the most Star Wars-y one that Disney has made. All right, 2018. No, sorry, 2017. Brad, I'll give you the choice here. Uh, Last Jedi is the highest grossing film of that year domestically. You hate that movie a lot. And I still feel like even though it's been going on, you know, what, six, seven years since that movie came out, there was so much discourse about that movie that I still Mm -hmm. don't know if people are ready to revisit it and talk about it again. Yeah. I maybe, loved it. It's, maybe it's, we'll start the trend, Bob. That's what I'm saying. Do you want to talk about it or do you want to go with the alternative programming, which is the really bad Disney live action remake of <laughs> Beauty and the Beast? Oh, man. I think that we should do a marriage story knockoff where I read a list of all the things I used to like about you before we got divorced over mm-hmm. The Last Jedi. And you do the same for me. I think sure. that's a good option. I just don't know if if our podcast can withstand a Last Jedi debate. I think it can. I just don't know that we can make an entertaining. <laughs> like, we both feel so strongly in each direction. Yeah. That it, well, it'll just be shouting each other down. Here, you know? How about how about this? What if we actually, my, my marriage story joke kind of triggered something for me. What if we actually had, like, you have a five-minute uninterrupted, you can record it on your own before we even get on. Like, each of us has a five-minute uninterrupted, here's my pitch why this movie is great or terrible, and then we just discuss that for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, do a whiskey review, call it a day. Mm. Change it up a little bit, see see where it takes us, because... I don't know if me 
peppering points in about why I hate the movie as you're trying to pepper points in why you love the movie will make great audio. I like that. All right. So we will do The Last Jedi and we will allow for five minute. <laughs> It'll be like debate club. Yeah. I was going to say we almost need to get a. a uh, um, ooh, like, maybe like a moderator. Yeah, I was going to say we could get Patrick H. in here, but he likes the movie, so. He does. He'd be on my he, side. Yeah, he's not a unbiased observer. Yeah, maybe we should find a moderator for that. That would be interesting. All right, 2018, we're watching Black Panther, uh, which I think, Brad, even though you weren't as high on Black Panther as I was, will be a much more harmonious episode than sure. The Last Jedi will. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I think you could say that pretty safely about almost any other episode we've ever done, Bob. <laughs> And then 2019, we are watching what was and uh, what still might be uh, the highest grossing film of all time, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, they, uh, they, you know, that movie, it is a, a film. lot of money, Bob. It sure did. <laughs> it sure did. I really liked Infinity War a lot more than I liked Avengers Endgame. And I think that I will bring up that point many, many times throughout our 2019 <laughs> episode. What what year did uh, Infinity War come out? Was that like 16 or 17? No, it came out the year prior. It came out the same year as Black Panther, but Black uh, Panther made more money. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there well, you go. Here we are, Bob. We did it. We did it. We We're chased the them. almighty dollar and man, oh man, did we reap what we sowed. Well, we haven't repped it yet. Reaped it yet. <laughs> it has not been repped. It has not been reaped. Man, we are really, dude, the last five movies of the season, Disney, 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 Disney. Yeah. And not even good Disney. No. Ugh. Ugh. Freaking Disney. Oh, Bob, you did it. We did it, man. Here's the thing. 2019 actually had some really solid movies in that Mm -hmm. year. Like, we're talking Jojo Rabbit, Ford versus Ferrari, uh, Marriage Story. Am I right? Was that 2019? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, there's some really stellar movies that came out right before the pandemic. So if you want to go and watch great movies, they're they're available. They're just not made by Disney. <laughs> All right, man, we made it through our list. I'd love to hear what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks of these 32 films. Uh, we hope that you tune in because we're doing it for you. We're chasing the dollar. We're chasing the downloads. Uh, help us out here, Film and Whiskey Nation. But Brad, before we get out of here for the day... We need to drink some whiskey. We're trying a few whiskeys with our friend Seth Benheim from Broken Barrel Spirits. So what do you say we throw over to that interview now? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. It's the moment you've all been waiting for. A moment that is like two, three years in the making here, Brad. Yeah, I am just incredibly excited to jump back into the world of Broken Barrel. Primarily for the fact that as when we were at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival just a few months ago, Bob, we got to witness the official breaking of a barrel. Yeah. Apparently, this is like their actual process. They just uh, crowdsource strong people from an audience. We literally we were like in between a hotel and some other building in this alleyway. And uh, our guest today was just sitting there with an axe and a barrel and said, who wants to come take a couple swings? And boy, let me tell you, uh, do drunk people love swinging axes? Because they sure do. Boy, oh boy, did they take that barrel apart. And I didn't have to sign a liability form to get in there. So, no. Seth, I feel like you were taking some chances. <laughs> I know, I know. But we, um, those were, this was more of an expose or exposition um, than anything else. So we were just trying to get uh, some of the 
theatrics and, and the experiential portion of how our products come together. We were trying to get that across to people and give them uh, a chance to see what it was like and how we do what we do, but not, you know, as exactly as we actually do it. More of a, you know, anything goes kind of a vibe. Anything did go and a blast was had by all. We should say up front, the voice that you're hearing on the other end of the line here is our friend Seth Benheim of Broken Barrel, who we have not had on the show since, I believe, 2020 or early 2021. And I have been hearing more and more great things about this company, a company, Brad, that we raved about back back in the day of this yeah. podcast. But in speaking with a couple people in the know, I've come to understand that their their whole core line has been uh, reintroduced, revamped. Uh, reimagined reimagined i don't want to say improved because it was really really good but we're here to walk through the core line of broken barrel with seth today and i'm i'm just really really excited man well you can definitely say it improved it's okay it got better (laughs) i was gonna say i i liked the other stuff this stuff is better It, it this is like i i'm so excited to get into it tonight in true film and whiskey fashion, uh, Brad has already drank the whiskeys, and I have been waiting patiently to crack them open. So I'm going to be sipping them live as we talk through this core lineup with Seth. Seth, I'll let you call the shots here. We've got four samples in front of us. We've got a 95 proof small batch. We've got the 100 proof Americana, the 105 Heresy, and then there is a 115 cask strength. I'm assuming we're not going to start with the cask strength, but if you want to lead the way, Walk us through this uh, this core line here. Absolutely. Uh, the order you just named them is absolutely the order in which I would drink them. So I generally like to just climb in proof and go higher and higher. So if you want to start with the small batch 95 proof, that is an advisable and welcomed starting mm-hmm. point for this uh, this journey. Man, Brad, even as I'm nosing this one, this is really beautiful. Right off the bat, I mean, it's it's classic bourbon notes. Like you get some vanilla, but then I get a burst of like melon on this one. I was really mm-hmm. surprised. I wrote down cantaloupe here, and uh, there's a little bit of banana, which is a note that I love and that we never ever get on bourbons. So yeah. this is already like in rarefied air for me. Yeah, I was gonna say I didn't quite get the melon note, but banana was literally the first thing that I wrote down. Uh, like I got banana, I got some like more like mixed berry, raspberry, blackberry type notes mm-hmm. and a decent amount of caramel here. And uh, Bob, I've seen you've moved into the palate. This is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank yeah. you guys. No, nothing else needed to say. This is yeah. so good. Full stop. <laughs> I was going to say we're really proud uh, of this product and certainly it's been our staple, our go-to. It's the first product we ever launched and it has not changed um, in its idea and its kind of core principle, which is our oak bill. And so if you recall the process of Broken Barrel, in addition to, you know, drunk people swinging axes, which is (laughs) obviously not not how we make the product. We have very sober people in the middle of the day uh, during work hours, breaking barrels, Oftentimes with sledgehammers, but also we are not um, we are not strangers to using an angle grinder to cut off the uh, the rings and and break the barrels in a uh, efficient and practical fashion and a safe fashion, <laughs> um, and you know to expedite the process. 
So we do that, and in doing that, we are able to uh, extract all these different staves from different types of barrels, and we combine them with one another using different staves from different barrels uh, in tandem to all be lowered into the tank where the whiskey is dumped, and we call that our oak bill. And we'll actually list out on every bottle the composition of the different barrel staves to one another, Hmm. the ratio. And yeah, it's, we call that the oak bill. And because you have a larger surface area of inside, outside, sides of a stave, all in contact with the whiskey, you find a lot more flavor, a lot more color, a lot more um, of a finish and complexity is created through doing this. And so it's a really neat process that gives you um, a really fun opportunity to really experiment with some new combinations and new flavor profiles that in our opinion just never really existed before because no one's ever done this before i was gonna say i'm super curious what the testing process for this looked like like at some point one of you had to say hey we're gonna try this thing where we put it in a giant vat and break up barrels to put in there but you're obviously not going to spend five million dollars making a facility to do that until you've tried it so what was that testing process like of making sure that this style of making whiskey was viable? That's a great question. Um, we started with a vodka brand and had the facilities, equipment, personnel, um, funded money to create brands and, and innovate. We already had that going on. So we were um, we just bought a few barrels and basically... Um, sat there and tasted the whiskey on its own first and then started playing around with the idea of uh, stave finishing and quickly got to a point where we were like, all right, let's uh, try this much French oak and this much ex-bourbon and this much sherry. You know, we tried a third, a third, a third. We tried, you know, 25, 25, 50. And we tried, you know, but we ended up on a 20, 20, 40, um, sorry, a 40, 40, 20 uh, oak bill for several of our core whiskeys because we liked having a hint of something sweet. In this case, the sherry cask. Um, In the case of the Americana, it was our apple brandy cask that provided a sweet uh, balance and backbone to the whiskey. But then you had very strong wood flavors, caramel, vanilla. um, All of that was coming from things like French oak and ex-bourbon barrel. So that was where we were able to experiment was having blending tanks and having the space, the licenses, all those things. We weren't just kind of like woke up one morning saying, I want to do whiskey and I'm going to buy all this stuff. You know, all we had to buy was the wood and the barrels at first and we used the rest of the equipment we already had. So so I'm curious then, and I'm, I've just poured out the Americana. You said apple brandy barrel and that like immediately gets me excited. But when you're looking at like a similar type of whiskey, so like your bourbon at 95 proof, your bourbon at 100 What's your control? Like, are you using the same mash bill and just adjusting the oak staves? Or is is there variance even within the mash bill on, on these? The mash bill for all of our bourbons is a 70 core and 21 rye, 9% malted barley. Um, it's all two-year-old, three-year-old, you know, up to four-year-old whiskey that is blended after being aged and then finished after being blended. Gosh. However you want to call it. Uh, and they're all from the same place. They're all from Owensboro, Kentucky. So, um, you know, we have a, a very small room for variance when you have 20, 30, even 40 barrel batches being um, batched together. 
And then in the case of the Americana, which you're about to try, Bob, that is going to be a blend of MGP light whiskey and that Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Mm -hmm. So in com combining those two whiskeys, you have much older American whiskey blended with the, you know, younger, but very flavorful, very full-bodied uh, bourbon whiskey, which obviously that new chart oak is doing a lot of heavy lifting and giving bourbon mm -hmm. this, those yeah. wonderful, wonderful characteristics and the stuff in Owensboro. Um, now you're two hours uh, southwest of Louisville, which is another, I don't know, two hours from, hour and a half from uh, MGP. So you've moved almost four hours uh, west, southwest, uh, from from where most of the barrels at MGP are aging. So that's slightly different to ours, slightly different effects. You know, the, the rick houses are much older and um, are much smaller uh, at um, on the storage, you know, pallet stored in a pretty modern, pretty new rick house at MGP. Whereas the warehouses in Owensboro, not only are they older, but they're they're brick versus uh, you know stainless steel, aluminum, whatever they're using on yeah. the walls. So they're just different types of storage, right? And so all that, how many racks, uh, or sorry, how many barrels high they stack them, um, all those components change. So you always hear about, well, this was in warehouse F in third row, and you know fifth floor, and all that. You know, it's, it's just not quite as. Um, there's a lot of nuance you can find in that alone yeah, between yeah. barrel to barrel. But obviously when you're going four hours away from where the mother load of bourbon and whiskey is coming from for, for yeah. independent brands, I should say, that yeah. are buying from MGP, yep. you're going to find variants for sure. No question. Well, and that's, that's part of the, re that's part of the reason I asked the question too, is I think that a lot of people, when they see, you know, a company has three bourbons in their core line at these three proof points, they just assume it's the same mash bill and they're just releasing it at, at three different proof points. And what I love about you guys is that there is like some pretty wild variants between each of these expressions. And, you know, Brad, my personal like my flavor wheelhouse that I like to live in this 100 proof. I'm like, oh, I could drink this all day, you know, and, and it says a lot about my uh, my uh, increasing tolerance to higher proof whiskeys that I'm like, oh, this is an easier sipper than the 95 proof, you know? <laughs> I was to say, Bob's preferred wheelhouse is like cherry cream cheese frosting. I think that's, if you could just drink that. I'm pretty Bob's sure preferred wheelhouse is diabetes. If it tastes <laughs> like diabetes in a glass, then yeah. <laughs> Bob, do you have diabetes? I sure do, man. Type oh, one, man. Though. I didn't, I didn't get it from cherry frosting, believe it or not. <laughs> That's that's I mean, that's something, I guess. <laughs> well, now that we've uh, violated all sorts of HIPAA regulations, let's let's move into this yeah, third expression. Here, not man. a healthcare professional, Bob. No, neither am I. You're I'm certainly just... not after this episode, man. <laughs> Brad, I think this third one is is calling your name. Why don't you introduce oh, this man. heresy? Yeah. So this is Broken Barrel's Heresy Rye. It's coming in at 105 proof, which means. It's starting to get into that proof point where I feel like you get a lot of flavor and viscosity balanced really beautifully. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, Seth, I already drank this and I can tell you, this is my favorite of the four. I just think there is so much ability with rye to give the customer just this explosion of flavor 
like there's a lot of caramel and almost like a vanilla extract on this. Uh, the, there's uh, there's oak and black pepper. I got like an apple pie crust throughout. There's so much flavor going on, but it's all undergirded by this really beautiful pop of rye spice. Mm-hmm. And I just I can't say enough about this heresy rye. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. I, I'm very happy that this is your favorite because it is by far and large, you know, one of our favorites throughout the entire portfolio, limited edition and core and everything in between, including single barrels we've done for folks. So I'm, um, I, I'm with you, Bob, on what you were saying where, yeah, you're not getting three different proof points of the same thing, which sometimes I get that from some of the core, like Old Forester. You know, it's this is from this warehouse and this proof and that warehouse and that proof, but they're relatively the same age and same mash bill. You're just paying different prices for different proof points, and that's kind of an interesting thing. But the yeah, you have a bourbon, which is the 7021-9 mash bill, mm-hmm. and that oak bill. Then you have a blend with a totally different oak bill, totally different mash bill as a result of the blend and different age of the whiskeys in bowl. Then you're on to rye, which has no corn whatsoever. Uh, same location, same age, same oak bill, but you've replaced the base of it with a bourbon. From a, now you've got a rye and you've got a higher proof point. So the proof changed and the type changed, but the rest of the components are the same. But you have a wildly different whiskey. Like not anything about them is really the same in the glass, with the exception of the fact it was influenced by. 40% French oak, 40% uh, ex-bourbon, and 20% sherry gas. So you do get a, uh, a bit of the underpinning of that bourbon cast, which might be the only through line, and you get some of that vanilla that makes its way in mm-hmm. with some of the rye spice. And so you do get a little bit through line uh, there by having the bourbon barrels that held the small batch then being broken, not only to go back into the small batch, but also into the heresy. Well, Brad, if there's one thing I love doing, it's absolutely sprinting through four high-proof whiskey samples. Uh, but we're landing on this last one. And as I recall, my favorite of the last time we tried Broken Barrel was this uh, cast strength version. Mm-hmm. Seth, I'm really curious, you know, as much as you are able to reveal about the process here, when we talk about this core line being revamped and improved, did you go back to the drawing board with all of these? Did you find that some of them didn't need so much tweaking as others. And and specifically, like, I have not tried the cask strength yet, but like, how different is what's in my glass today than what I tried three years ago on this expression? Uh, tremendous difference. The whiskey is all older and the batch sizes are slightly larger, thus reducing any nuances between batches to a smaller margin of difference. Mm-hmm. So while we still are very proud of various different batches. There were tremendous swings and differences between batches one through 10 on regular small batch and on castering. Mm-hmm. 10 through 20, or we're even past 20 now, I think on some of these, uh, they are far more consistent in most regard, most respect. Uh, some have aged with the staves finished with the staves for longer than some of the other batches so there is always some nuance but yeah i think uh i think there's a tremendous increase in quality 
from the old packaging to the new packaging. Even though I tried some of the old packaging on a different podcast with a different group of guys recently. And I was, it's the first, it was the first time I think in the last six or nine months that I'd really gone back and tried one of the old packaging ones. It wasn't bad, man. It was not bad for a younger whiskey. And I think the batches were smaller. So there was a little bit more variability there and, mm. and variety of flavors and components that kind of shine through. Yeah. There was a little bit more harshness and spice to it because I was drinking a 116 proof. Um, I'll say this about the cast strength. Whatever we did before was earning silver medals, bronze medals, high 80 point scores. We changed the recipe and formula to do the older, larger batches. So older whiskey, larger number of barrels. And whatever we did worked because this year we won 94 points on the cast strength. We got uh, the best Kentucky finished bourbon at the World Whiskey Awards. We were named the most innovative whiskey company in America for 2023. Let's we are, go. We're an icon of whiskey now, forever and always. Uh, with American Whiskey Magazine, we were recommended by Peggy No Stevens in American Whiskey Magazine. We outscored probably like half of the major craft brands you know and think about today. Uh, we outscored Green River, who gave us the whiskey. We beat them in the same magazine on the same page. Our small batch beat their small batch, and our cast strength beat both by a fair amount, you know, over, call it five points. So, this whiskey has done phenomenally well, you know, 93 point scores and, and, and even the rye five times 93 point scores. It was named the best rye whiskey uh, for a Manhattan by the Beverage Testing Institute. And it was also named um, double gold San Francisco World Spirits Competition, which is one of the big ones. Yep. So the rye whiskey is actually, the rye whiskey is more awarded, but the cat strength is the best awarded. So, you know, the fact that you have all that memorized is like it's like when someone comes to my table at a restaurant and they can like list off every product in their fountain beverages. But, you know, I love that you are wearing it and owning it and you deserve to, man. When you guys came on the first time, Brad and I have tried a lot of companies that have really young whiskey and they try to mask the youth with some fancy gimmick. And I won't name names. But our very first interview that we ever did on this podcast was a whiskey company located in Cleveland. Uh, figure that out for yourself. And uh, uh, yeah, man, uh, not great stuff, you know. And so when we first heard about Broken Barrel, we're like, ah, oh, is this another one of these these gimmicky things? And we got the stuff and we're like, I, we said it on the air, Brad, you know, like we're not ashamed to say this on the air. For for the age of the whiskey, especially at the time that we got it, it was by far the best finishing process we've ever seen on whiskey that young. And now that you're, especially now that you're using older stock and larger batches to minimize those sort of aberrations in between each batch, like it's fantastic stuff. And you're you guys are doing it the right way. And I, I mean, Brad and I couldn't be happier to see the way things have expanded and exploded for you. Well, thank you. And we got to get you guys uh, on some of the, you know, if you see above my head, I've got, you know, our, this year we ended the year with our Honey Smoke Reserva, which is a Sotol and Honey Barrel finished American whiskey. It's a, it's a six year single barrel that we did for a few different folks around the country. We're really happy to be able to have released so many different batches of the stuff. Um, it's a really, really fun product. I love this product. And, and also our, we did another collaboration. Our first collaboration 
was with a distillery actually in Southern California. And then we switched over to working with a, not a distillery, but a liqueur. I mean, sure, a distillery, distilled spirits, but it's a liqueur company um, that does, uh, well, they do vodka, they do coffee liqueur, and they do uh, barrel-aged coffee liqueur. Mm-hmm. And so we got the, um, they're not the owners of the distillery, but they are contract producers. So it's really more of a brand than I say distillery. But uh, they basically go in, take over the distillery on a contract, and then they make these products. One of them is called Black Hirte, which is Danish for black heart. And they do this coffee uh, liqueur in barrels, and we get the barrels, and then we basically broke them up and put them with the rye whiskey blend, and it was awesome. Come on. Awesome product. 107 proof. Seth's preaching down here. That is That sounds incredible. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's very good stuff, yeah. If you hadn't told me what kind of liqueur it was, though, and you just told me that there's a Danish product called Black Heart, I'd be like, okay, I feel like that's just going to taste like straight licorice and and mud and dirt. Uh, but <laughs> man, I got to be honest with you, it sounds it sounds pretty delicious. It's good if you like coffee and you like sort of you know porter beer, some of those darker chocolatier flavors. Um, it it has all of that. It's actually not that dark in color as a liquid, and it's not overwhelmingly coffee flavored so it's very um it's very approachable and and delicious but you can also use it in cocktails and in conjunction with like coffee liqueurs to make different cocktails which we did at our launch party so it was really really fun well seth as we wind up today i do want to give you the chance to kind of to plug the company give any announcements what's coming down the pike for you guys and also what's your distribution look like at this point especially for this core four that you have here uh, distribution is great. You can always, of course, buy our whiskey at brokenbarrelwhiskey.com. You can buy our limited editions at brokenbarrelwhiskey.com. Um, we have a pretty quasi-national uh, distribution through our various partners that we work with uh, that run the platform on our site. Uh, we've got, you know, the, the I'll also plug Sealbox, which will be selling uh, their single barrel of the Honey Smoke Reserva. So definitely check them out. Those guys are great. Um, social media, check us out at Broken Barrel Whiskey. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok. And as far as what's in the pipeline, uh, expect a late first quarter, early second quarter collaboration for 2024. And we're then also extending our single barrel select program beyond just bourbon and rye to now incorporate American whiskey. And these will be age stated American whiskeys available by the single barrel. Wow. A multitude of different sources from Kentucky, Indiana, and Georgia. So we're going to be using some older whiskey all the way up to 10-year-old single barrel store picks. So we're excited to have those coming out. And they'll be customized oak bills that we work on with the retailer or the whiskey club or the whiskey group. Whoever is in charge of picking, they're going to work with me and my team directly to kind of tailor make, you know, whether it's a maple and honey or a French oak and honey or a Ex bourbon and maple or a cherry and French oak, whatever they come up with, we're going to cater to a certain number of people and they'll come out in waves. So there'll probably be like at least three, maybe four waves of barrel picks that are released where we can kind of do it all at once. So we'll take orders from different groups. They'll have a cutoff date, get their orders in, and then we buy all the materials we need to make sure we have what they want. And then we go age the whiskey for a period of time and then 
few months later, they'll release and be available. And we'll probably over or overstave them to get them done a little quicker. So if we would normally use, let's say 20 staves or 30 staves on a single barrel, in this instance, we would probably go 30 or 40 staves just to kind of really set that flavor in for those yeah. staves. I do it in a tie because people get a little, you know, squirrely after like five, <laughs> six, seven months. Like they forgot they even ordered it. So, you know, which, you makes, a, it, which makes it free yeah. at that point. Yeah. You want a good long finish. You want a good long finish on your whiskey. Don't question about that. But you don't want to go so long to the point where the people that bought the whiskey from you are like, well, something happened and now I can't take it. <laughs> right. It's, right. It's, been, it's been seven months. Where, where the hell have you guys been with my whiskey? So most people, yeah. Yep. You know, that's what's coming up. That's what's happening. Man, Seth, thank you so much. Film and Whiskey Nation, if you're not excited about Broken Barrel products, then I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I think you're living under a rock somewhere because what they are putting forth is really incredible whiskey. And it is a little bit of a non-traditional way, which I think is adding to its quality at this point. So please, please, please go out and get yourself some Broken Barrel. Seth, thank you for joining us, sir. It's been so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. I'll let you guys uh, get back to watching movies. 